Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Steve and I'm here with Bill. Good morning, Bill. Morning, Steve. And this is our second episode ever of the Field Guides. And what we're going to try to do today and over the course of many future episodes is give you the experience of what it's like to be out in the field, in the woods, and on the trail. Each episode, we pick a different nature topic, head to a natural spot, and share with you everything we found out about that topic. Now, Bill, do you want to give a brief introduction to where we're at today? Sure. So it is a beautiful October morning, and we are at the Rheinstein Woods Environmental Education Center. So it's a New York State Preserve located in Depew, which is, I think, about 10 miles away from Buffalo. About. So, I mean, yeah, it doesn't take a, me long to get we're here. We're in a suburb of Buffalo. But this property was really a private nature preserve owned by a man named Victor Rheinstein. And he planted 30,000 trees, created a whole bunch of ponds, and then eventually uh, the land came to the state. It was donated to the state in the 80s. Uh, and they've been taking care of their property since then. There is an environmental education center here, a beautiful building, a beautiful green building that uh, was renovated in 2007. And uh, if anyone's in the Buffalo area at any point in the future, they should really make a point of stopping in, checking out the building, going for a hike here, and if they're lucky enough, attending a program. What's our topic for today? Yeah, today we're talking about autumn leaf phenology. <laughs> but that's just a fancy way of saying, here's why the leaves change colors. Maybe I should have just said that. Just to say what phenology is, it's the study of cyclic and seasonal natural phenomena, especially in relation to climate and plants and animal life. And when we say the, that we're going to say why the leaves change color, Mm-hmm. We're going to look at two different whys. We're going to look at the chemical reason, like why mm-hmm. and what's going on within the leaf as it's changing color. But I think most of what we're going to talk about today is the evolutionary history, or at least the evolutionary theory of mm-hmm. why this is happening. Why do trees go through this process of uh, having their leaves change color? I like to think the trees change colors for us, yes, actually. exactly. They're they putting make on a oxi- show for us. <laughs> they make oxygen for us, and they uh, turn themselves into lumber for us. <laughs> so they were doing it before we were around, Yeah, as far as we know. Both questions are super interesting, and I think neither is, is really satisfying on its own. You know, right. uh, It's really cool to, to have a pretty good grasp of both. And as you'll find out as this episode goes by, we don't have a grasp of both. <laughs> well, the one we have a, a bit more, the chemical the one, chemical we have a bit one, more right. of an understanding. We'll get into the specifics in a few minutes, but I would really actually want to start with a couple of studies that we found that I found really interesting and actually really surprising. There was one paper that I found from the Annals of Botany in 2009, and what they did was they studied a little under 2,400 tree species from about 400 genera and uh, from all different temperate regions of the world. And what they found was uh, trees that produce red in their leaves, that only happens about 12% of the time. And they did include gymnosperms, like conifers and whatnot, in the study. So when you remove those from the study, it doesn't go much higher. It's still only like 13.5%. So not many. Yeah, and it probably evolved at least 25 times throughout its evolutionary history, which is nuts. So it's independently popping up all over the place, which is really cool. And then leaves that only have yellow pigments and no red pigments at all, that happens about 16% of the time. And then if you take gymnosperms out of that equation, it's about 17.5% of the time. The gymnosperms aren't really, you know, taken away too much. And yellow pigment probably evolved at least 28 times. On its which own. Is, yeah, on yeah. its own. But I think the real takeaway of this study, which blew me away, is that coloration is not the default for temperate deciduous trees. 
So and most deciduous yeah, trees are just green. Yes, most trees just stay green and they just don't go through this brilliant color change, which is what you think of when you think of fall. Right, and I, right. and it just it blew my mind to find out that that's not what happens for the most part. It's it's sort of the exception to the rule in a sense. And the great thing about where we live, living in the Northeast, North America, uh, one study that I found is that in New England, 70%, about 70% of species do turn red in the fall. And then about 30% of trees turn yellow in the fall. So we have a much higher percentage when compared with global averages. Yeah, and that's why I think people like coming to the Northeast so much. Yeah, yeah, we have a disproportionate amount of color change, which is super nice. And I should point out that the study that I looked at said that those percentages were for New England. Yeah, so a little bit northeast of us in New York. So most people don't include New York in New England. (laughs) No one does, unless you're confused. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. So they said there's even variation uh, within genera. Mm -hmm. So take maples, for example. Normally you would think maples produce a lot of color, but only about 50% of maple species have red coloration. Oh, wow. So you would think it might be more than that, but only about 50%. Yeah, so. that's interesting. Well, we here in the Northeast, we don't have a broad range of maple species. You know, yeah, we we'll have... talk about maples a little bit more when we uh, identify a maple later. Okay. But Do you want to identify um, a maple now? Yeah, actually, I don't think I have anything else. All right, now you said you wanted to identify a red maple. The tree we have in front of us here is not a red, but I know there's a red back up the trail a little bit. Do you want to go do it's, the red? It's a red sugar maple. Right. But, you know, I, I have a little bit on red maples, so okay. let's, do the, uh, let's do the red maple. All right. Yeah. We can also bend down because there's lots of red maple leaves at our feet as well. You're just trying to get me to bend over. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Yeah. All right. And Bill's sick right now, by the way. I just want to say thank you, Bill, for agreeing to come out, even though you were sick and you no knew problem. you were sick yesterday. <laughs> or not sick, at least you're you're strained in some way. <laughs> yes, but I wanted to be out, and I think being out on the trail in the fresh air will be good for me. Yeah, and I so. appreciate it. I appreciate <laughs> you deluding yourself into thinking that. <laughs> All right, so we're going to go off trail here. Uh-huh. Careful. Oop, yeah. Oh. Is that a red? I think that's a red. That's a red. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to know how I know it's a red? Ow, jeez. <laughs> oh, no. It's because the tree's labeled. It's not. <laughs> but that would be something that they would do at a nature center, right? It is true. So if you're walking up to a tree and you're wondering, hmm, what kind of tree is this? What do we look at first? Okay, so there's just the five basic categories. And, and Bill and I both use Peterson's Guide to Trees and Shrubs, and they break it up in a really nice way. Um, there's a section for needle-like leaves, and that one's pretty simple. And then you have your broad-leaved plants that are opposite and simple. You have broadleaf plants that are opposite and compound, right. and then you have alternate simple and alternate compound. So those are the five major categories. And luckily, the opposite-leaved trees doesn't have that many species in it. Not and you can, here, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you can actually get the vast majority of them just through remembering madcap horse. Right, so if, yeah. madcap horse, the M-A-D, the mad part of it, stands for maple ash, and dogwood. So if you have one of those three uh, trees in front of you, it's going to be an opposite brancher. And then the cap stands for Caprifoli ACE, which sounds very complicated, but Steve, what's in that group of plants? Honeysuckle's the big one, Viburnums. What else? Uh, there may be some other ones in I there, but those, there are, the, those are the two big ones that uh, we usually run into you know, in our travels. Mm-hmm. So you have maple ash dogwood, that's the mat. Yep. Cap for Caprifoli ACE, which are the Viburnums in the the honeysuckles. Mm-hmm. And then horse is horse chestnut. 
I will say, you know, if you spend a lot of time outside looking at trees, especially in wild areas, you're not going to run into a lot of horse chestnuts, at least not in the northeast. They're just planted right. all throughout Buffalo. So Anytime yeah. I've ever seen a horse chestnut, it's been on a lawn, in a park, yep. um, not in a wood setting. They're not native anyway, right? We have one at my cabin, but it's because we planted it. In fact, my uh, relatives confuse me. They're like, ooh, we have a chestnut. We planted it. Here, let me show you. And they take me over to this chestnut. I'm like, that's a horse chestnut. That's not, that's not what I wanted. That's not what I expected. They get a um, tar spot fungus real bad, especially at my cabin. There's one. It's just, it's covered. It's a disgusting looking tree, really. <laughs> it's like some Norway maples that uh, they're just covered in tar spot and they're no good. And that's a person. But we're not judgmental yeah. <laughs> about trees. Yeah. So if you're looking at a medium to large tree and it's opposite branching, chances are it's going to be a maple or an ash. Dogwoods and viburnums and honeysuckles don't get real large usually yeah they're just little shrubs yeah they're shrubs and horse chestnut is pretty easy to identify it has a very distinct leaf you're automatically narrowed down to a maple or an ash if it's Mm -hmm. a a medium to a big tree yeah we believe this tree is an opposite brancher Mm -hmm. we know it's but let's pretend (laughs) that we're figuring it out so it's an opposite brancher and then we look at the leaves and we're we're convinced it's a maple Mm -hmm. Uh, think of the canadian flag right yes but how do we know which maple this is If I'm thinking about the maples, the ones that I see the most are either red, sugar, or silver maple. Right. Silver maple has really, really deeply cut areas around each lobe. With a sugar maple, kind of think of your hand, like spread wide. Okay. It's got about five main veins and five main points. And that one's really like the Canadian flag, I think, right? I think it's a a stylized, but that's the one that's closest to you. Yeah, definitely. And the big difference between a red maple and a sugar maple is that a red maple is really only going to have three main veins and only three main spikes that those veins kind of come to a point in. I would say that the the red maple has the teeth. Oh, yeah. Sugar maple has an untoothed margin. Yeah, smoother. It's a smooth, yeah. Yeah. Before we get into the pigments, I actually want to bring something up that I thought was interesting about maples in general. You know that the family's not the Aceraceae, right? No. Yeah. Would you believe me if I told you that they're in the same family as horse chestnut? No, I would not. Yeah. Well, you better believe me because I looked it up last night. I was searching all over uh, Google Scholar, and the soapberry family is kind of interesting. Um, wait, 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 wait. So you're telling me that the maples are in the soapberry family? Yes. Yes. It's what? really it's really weird. So there so, is no Aceraceae? Nope. It doesn't exist anymore because it only had one a genus, and that genus is now part of the soapberry family, Whoa. and that family is the... Sapindaceae. Sapindaceae. Yep, and so that's the maple, the horse chestnut, and the lychee. And I could have swore that I had a lychee shake when I was down in the Everglades. It's a lychee fruit. I I know, but I went on the website for Robert is here. That's the place that we (laughs) went to. And they're like, no, it's only available mid-May to mid-June. So I was lying to myself. I was convinced that I'd had it. Maybe I saw it on the menu and it was like, oh, it's only seasonal and it stuck in my head for some reason. Um, you delude yourself about a lot of things. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, so um, and, and the same with the horse chestnut. The horse, they, they must have done a big um, revamping of, of the taxonomy or, or um, through wow. the genetics back in right around 2001. It just blew my mind, taxonomically yeah. speaking. Oh, a bonus thing. This relates episode one with episode two. And that is, and I think I read this in Eastman, that goldenrods are leliopathic to maples. So if you have goldenrods growing in an area, they're releasing chemicals into the soil. And if a maple seed happens to germinate, or maybe it wouldn't even germinate. Well, either way, um, goldenrods have defenses against maples propagating in areas that they're already growing in. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay, so I guess back to the pigments. Back I don't want to. Wanna... Pig- We're talking about special pigments today? Yes. And you grab the greenest I leaf. Did. Is I did. this on purpose? It did is you... on purpose because Ooh. I figured I could just bend down. Oh, Because right, right. at our feet, there are lots of uh, red maple and other leaves with 
red in them. And this one's got little galls all over it. If you guys remember galls from last episode, yeah, we, we did mention that some galls form on the leaves of trees. And this this uh, this dark, it's like a black and red leaf. It's yeah. got little galls all over it. It's pretty cool. So we have, I'm holding two red maple leaves in my hand. One is uh, more or less all green. One is a deep red, and like Steve said, with some darker blotches on it. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's get to talking about what happens in the fall. You start to have changes in the weather. Trees start the process of dropping their leaves. That leads to leaf color change. But did you find that that's attributed more to temperature, daylight length, to what? A little bit of both. I'm going off a 2015 study that wasn't on that topic, okay. but what they had cited was that temperature and photo period, which is the amount of daylight you have. I don't know how much I should just trust that, but that's sort of what I was going off of. I was trying to go with like the newest publications. Right. What, did you find something different where it was more one than the other? Well, what I found, and as we go along through the podcast today, people are going to keep hearing us say that people don't know. Researchers don't know. Even people that know a lot about trees and how they work and, and what's going on, they're not sure, but the thing to watch out for, when I started doing the research for this podcast, I would watch a lot of videos from sources that I figured were reputable, like Scientific American, and they said with certainty that trees start the process of dropping their leaves and color change when photo period or daylight length reaches a certain point in autumn, that that is the key for them. So once the daylight shortens to a certain amount, then the trees know, oh, winter's coming, time to start this process of dropping our leaves. And that particular source also said that temperature, the only impact that has is on color intensity. A lot of other sources said, nah. Yeah. Uh, I'll get into later on, there's a study that related when colors started to appear has to do with atmospheric concentrations of CO2. I think the bottom line is here, we're not sure, Yeah. but there's going to be a lot of sources out there that say it's related to daylight length. That when... Yeah. Um, day the hours of daylight during the autumn reach a certain point then the trees are going to start releasing a hormone that signals the growth of a certain layer the abscission layer you do, look like you, you have if, something to do say do you mind if i pipe in about the hormones go right ahead okay genes rule everything really and this is really important for people who like biology to understand that genes are incredibly important when it comes to what you see yeah what's happening yeah, yeah. Every, everything they do everything they look like and yeah. <laughs> everything in between and, and several thousand genes are expressed during leaf abscission. So DNA becomes RNA, and RNA becomes protein, and, and, and a lot of that has to do with hormones. And the hormone has certain effects that actually cause genes to be expressed. I really hope I'm not losing people, but... <laughs> You're losing me. <laughs> in genetics, when we want to know what a gene does, we break the gene. We force a mutation, we somehow knock that gene out, and then we sit back and see what happens. And by doing this, we've slowly been knocking out all these different genes that code for all these different hormones. And it turns out that there's a lot of hormones. Traditionally, a lot of people thought that this hormone, abscisic acid, had a lot to do with leaves falling and color change, but really, it's not actually true across all species, and it doesn't have as big of an effect. In fact, if they end up knocking out the gene for abscisic acid, yeah, everything happens normally. The only problem is abscisic acid closes the stomata, and the stomata is what keeps the water in the leaf. In That's the leaf. super, super important. Right. Um, and uh, so what they found was that almost any hormone you've heard of has to do with this. So it's like the big ones, there's like five big classes, and the majority of those do. So you have ethylene, abscisic acid, auxin that we talked about last episode, gibberellins, and other hormones in various concentrations. They all play important roles. And it's just a complicated mess, and it's so hard to figure out. And I think that's partly why we're still figuring it out today. So when I say that when researchers think that daylight reaches a certain length, the tree releases a hormone starting the process, 
that is a gross oversimplification of what's going on inside the tree. <laughs> yeah, they haven't figured it out. But there's good reason why they haven't right. figured it out. It's because like, just this one simple act that happens in a big group of plants is so complicated. Right. And, and when you have all these puzzle pieces doing all their own thing all at different times. It's hard to figure out how they're all fitting together. And oh, yeah. Who's doing what. Yeah. All right, but we do know that when the tree starts the process, a layer starts to form where the leaf stem is attached to the twig. So what starts to develop there is called the abscission layer. Now that layer is actually two parts. There's a film closer to the leaf called the separation layer. And the cells within that are short and thinned walled so they're brittle. And then closer to the stem, another film starts to form called the protection layer. And what starts to develop is this corky nodule. That starts cutting off flow of nutrients from the leaf and to the leaf. And that starts the process of chlorophyll disappearing. We can start to see other colors, which we'll get into in a moment. Mm -hmm. um, and over time, the separation layer gets thicker and thicker, pushes against the separation layer, and eventually a tear forms in the separation layer and the leaf will fall off mm -hmm. and then fall to the ground. And then you have that protection layer there, which essentially we see as the leaf scar. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's the, the simplified version of what happens. Now this process stretches over the course of weeks and what's happening during that, that process? What, what do we want to talk about there? The three most important things for a plant cell. The first is that it is a cell wall. This yeah. also has almost nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. The vacuole, which we'll get to later, the vacuole is a big reason why the plant can stay erect, why, they can, why the plant can stay turgid. So that's very important. We'll talk about that. It's important with anthocyanins. And then it's got chloroplasts. Right. And chloroplasts are super important. Plants are autotrophs. They use the sun to make their own energy. And chloroplasts are the area that that happens in. And within the chloroplasts yep. are the pigments. Yes. But yeah. I just wanted to give a very, very brief overview of just photosynthesis in general. Well, right, because definitely. Photosynthesis is just taking CO2 from the air, water from the ground, and you're turning into organic molecules, um, which are going to be like sugars. They're going to be um, like cellulose, just important building blocks for the plant. We're just going to talk about a tiny bit, and we're only going to talk about the very beginnings of photosynthesis. This is where the whole thing starts. You have a photon from sunlight. It ends up hitting something called the antenna complex, and the antenna complex is just packed with uh, pigments. That's all it is. And when, when light hits a pigment, it excites an electron in the pigment, and that energy is passed all the way down to the reaction center, and that's where we're, we're ending. We don't care about that anymore. It goes into the photosystem one and two processes, and we don't need to know anything about that. But inside the antenna are chlorophyll and carotenoids, and that's what absorbs or reflects sunlight. Chlorophyll, that's the, the green pigment that we're all used to. The carotenoids are the oranges and the yellows, and they are there in the leaf during the growing season, but they're masked by the chlorophyll, mm -hmm. right? The carotenoids, they're absorbing wavelengths of light that could be damaging to the leaf. Some people call them almost like a, a sunscreen, but they're there all mm -hmm. during the growing season. Carotenoids, which some people call carotenoids. Yeah, and I like that. I, I like, like that too. I like carotenoids. Because you can see that those pigments can be found in, in carrots as well. But mm -hmm. And uh, beta-carotene, which you'd pronounce carrot, you know. Right, exactly. <laughs> that, that's, that's one of the carotenoids. And so. we have carotenoids in our eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, they do protect a retina from damaging wavelengths of light. And then if you've ever seen the Grand Prismatic Spring in Yellowstone National Park, it's a, this amazing hot spring as big as a football field, and it has all these rings of color. Uh, and those are there because of mats of uh, algae and cyanobacteria. Different groups of cyanobacteria are in the different areas of temperature. So when you're in the hotter water, you get the blues, and as you move out towards the edge of the spring, you get different colors. And there's this nice ring of orange 
and yellows around the edge and that's where you're going to have the carotenoids. So mm -hmm. these pigments are not just in leaves, they're in, in lots of living things. When I think of carotenoids, I just associate them with chlorophyll. They're found in the same spot. When the chlorophyll starts to disappear, the carotenoids can show off a little bit. It's nice to see the yellows. Sure. Uh, some of the oranges as well, there's uh, the yellow and orange carotenoids. So the when the abscission layer starts to form, which I was talking about before, mm -hmm. that starts to cut off nutrients to the leaf, and then the chlorophyll stops being replaced, because yeah. all through the growing season, chlorophyll is getting replaced. And, and chlorophyll is an expensive molecule to create. Nitrogen is super important for plants. You may hear people fertilize with nitrogen and phosphorus and whatnot, but nitrogen, not only is it used in the creation of DNA, but every chlorophyll has four nitrogens in it. And that's a that's an expensive thing to have. When the trees reabsorb that chlorophyll and then store it for spring the next year, 80% of the nitrogen that ends up in the seeds for the following year comes from the chlorophyll being broken down. Uh, yeah. And that could be a very important thing. We might get into that later with something like climate change and how that might affect seed yields. If the plant doesn't have enough time to reabsorb all that chlorophyll, then it might not do as well in producing seeds. Folks should keep in mind that when they do see the leaves changing, and you touched on it when what you just said, that when they see the leaves changing, you know, we appreciate a, a nice display of fall color. But when that's going on, that tree is trying to pull in as much as it can from the leaves to store that over the winter time. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to keep those leaves on as long as it could. It's got to get rid of them because it can't have them on there in the winter time, but it's trying to pull as much as it can and then store that for next year. Mm -hmm. Now, do we want to talk about the reds? Yes. All right, because I think for many, I think it's important to point out, for many years people thought the oranges and the reds were there all the time, but researchers eventually found out that that's not the case. The carotenoids, the oranges and yellows are there, but the reds actually develop in the fall and the pigments that create the red are called anthocyanins yes and you're gonna hear the, us say that word a yeah, lot yeah. for the rest of the podcast. so i'll just get this out of the way now anthocyanins are not the group of pigments anthocyanins are part of a different group called the flavonoids we have the carotenoids the chlorophylls and the flavonoids and you'll never hear that again we're going to talk about anthocyanins that's really going to be the big big focus of the rest of the podcast really right why yeah. did this this red coloration develop Mm -hmm. And would you say that researchers generally agree that the oranges, the, the carotenoids are there to protect the leaf from different forms of light? Yeah, they protect against UV rays. So the green pigments are yeah. there to help with photosynthesis, to make food. There's, they're yeah. doing other things as well. Then you have the carotenoids are there to protect the leaf. But why do we have the, these red colors that develop in the fall? That is the big question that researchers the world over are trying to answer. And we're here today mm -hmm. kind of reporting on what they found and they're not really sure. Yeah. We're going to review really quick. We already talked about chlorophyll, the green that you see in plants. But why is it green? It absorbs light in the blue end, and that's closer to ultraviolet light. And a way to think about that is ultraviolet light. Right. And so violent, you think of higher energy. So it absorbs in the blue, so it absorbs a lot of high energy. And that, and it also, that could potentially be more damaging to the leaf. Yes, yeah. exactly. And it also absorbs in red, which is sort of a lower energy. And it doesn't absorb very good in the middle, where the greens are. So it's absorbing the blues and the reds, and it's reflecting the greens. And so that's why we see green. In carotenoids, it's going to be absorbing in the blues still, and it reflects in like orange, the yellows yellow. and the orange. Right. And then anthocyanins. Uh, anthocyanins absorb in the green. And depending on the anthocyanin, they're going to reflect in the red, or they're going to reflect in the purple, or in the, the purple or the blue. Right. I think blueberries get their blue color from anthocyanins, and also strawberries get their red color from anthocyanins, which is nuts. Yeah. And a lot of flowers sort of depend on anthocyanins for right. that bright right. color. So when the abscission layer is forming and the leaf starts uh, pulling nutrients back in, the chlorophyll disappears, there, there's still going to be sugars trapped in the leaf. 
-hmm. And what happens is those sugars start to react with what are called anthocyanidins. Mm -hmm. And that creates the anthocyanins, those red colors. Within recent research history, they've, they've figured out that this happens in the fall. Yeah. Which, again, for a long time, people didn't think happened. They're like, whoa, wait a minute. These colors are actually developing in the fall? Well, why? Why is this happening in the fall? Yeah, and that's so important because not only is it being created in the fall, they use sugars yeah. mixed with anthocyanins, and sugars are so important for storage for the spring. Why is it using its valuable resources to create anthocyanins? It must be something important. Right. There must be a very important reason for this. Now, the intensity of the red color, uh, there's some idea out there that if you have warm fall days and then cold fall nights where temperatures get into the 40s, not freezing, you're going to have a brighter display of red color. Mm -hmm. But then I came across a study that said, no, 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 it has to do with soil nutrient availability. So this was a 2007 study from the Geological Society of America. What they did is they looked at uh, maple trees and the soils that they were growing in. And they found that where soil was low in nitrogen and other essential elements, trees produced more red pigment. And they said that uh, anthocyanins are an investment made by stressed trees when they stand to gain from the extra recovery of nutrients from their leaves. Okay, so it's not about the, the showy color. It's about survival, really. Mm -hmm. All right, so if you're a tree and you're going in an area where you don't have a lot of nutrients, where the, the soil is poor you're going to create more red because hopefully that's going to allow the leaves to hang on a little longer and you can pull more nutrients in. Yeah. Okay. I also found a study, and, and since we're right near red maple anyway, it yeah. has to do with red maples, and it was uh, from the journal Plants in 2015. They studied 27 trees over two years, and what they found was the fall color in those trees was variable, but from tree to tree, the anthocyanin content was consistent. And what they found was that the earlier in autumn a, ma a red maple begins its senescence, the higher the level of anthocyanins What's there was. senescence? The process of losing its leaves. Yeah. Uh, reabsorbing that, you nutrients. know, yeah, the nutrients and losing the leaves. What they said in the discussion of the paper was that a possible factor contributing to this is that the earlier senescing leaves, they're exposed to higher solar radiation because the, the photo period, the days are longer. While dismantling the photosynthetic machinery, you have an increased danger of this photo oxidative damage. We'll get into this, but it's what a lot of people think anthocyanins are used for is, is this protection against this photo oxidation. I mean, it seems like this paper has some pretty good evidence that protection from photooxidation is a, you know, it could be a good theory. Okay. <laughs> this study also showed that some of the variability had to do with the acidity in the soil as well. Okay. And that was something they could, they could sort of see a positive correlation with. I think it was the more acid, the more red it was. But it just confounds things more because you're talking about nutrients and I'm talking about acidity well, I and think, photo period. <laughs> no, no matter what that, this particular study says about nutrient, I think that it's not just one thing. Yeah, it's so many things. Everything's going to sort of account for some of the variability. Right. Within. I just this study just jumped out at me though because it was one of the few that mentioned nutrient availability and connecting that to color display, which I thought makes perfect sense. I don't think that's the only factor, but the researchers said that their next step was going to actually look at soil maps and then look at maps that show intensity of color display and see if they match up. Okay. So in areas where uh, soils are poor are you going to get a more intense display there? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Which would be uh, very interesting to see the results from that. Okay, I think I think the next logical thing to go into, since we've we've talked about it a couple times, was the two major hypotheses about why anthocyanins are present. But I feel like you want to go for a walk when yeah, we do let's this. Yeah, walk a little. Yeah, bit. yeah. Let's go this way. Yeah, so we're perfect. Not walking through that. 
Uh, we were here, what, three days ago? Yeah. And it seemed a lot more green then, didn't oh, it? Oh yeah. I was actually a little disappointed last time we came out because I was like, oh, I wish there was more color. But now a few days goes by, so much more. It's yeah. intense. All right, now do we want to talk about the hypotheses or do we want to identify another tree first? What do you think? Uh, we could talk about uh, this tree. Oh, we could, how about this? We briefly, we briefly bring this one up because we had mentioned it before. Okay. So just as a review, we talked about madcap horse. Those are the opposite branchers. Yep, when we saw the maple, it was an opposite branch tree, but it had simple leaves. So it's just one single leaf. And this one, it's the ash. It's also opposite, but it's got compound leaves. So if you pulled the leaf off, you would have leaflets. And instead of just having one broad piece of leaf, you'd have the petiole, the leaf stem, mm -hmm. and then smaller leaves attached to that. Yeah, and they call a tree like this pinnately compound. Right. And if you imagine a pin, you know, you have this straight line, this yeah. straight stem, stem, yeah, and the then petiole. you have leaves coming off of that. Either side. I've also heard it referred to as feather compound, Oh, okay. uh, which makes sense because you would have the, the central part of the feather and then everything coming off of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So whereas the maple was green and turning red, yeah. um, we have this plant that, uh, actually I don't really see any green at all. It's nope. just all yellow. It's all We're yellow. only seeing keratinoids or carotenoids. Carotenoids. Right. Yeah. So if we, look, if we look at this guy, just to give people a quick ID, look out to where the leaves are and see how the leaves are attached. Yeah. When so. we say branched, we're more talking about the way the leaves are branched off of Correct. The stem. Yeah. The yeah, the branch. Yeah, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> branched off of the branch. Branched off of the We heard you like branches, so <laughs> branched off the limb. How's that? The branched off the limb, sure. Alright. We can see the leaves are attached opposite each other. So we know boom, opposite. This is a larger tree, again, well over fifty feet tall. So I'm eliminating dogwood, anything in the cap or fully AC, the viburnums, the mm -hmm. honeysuckles. We know it's not horse chestnut. Yep. Uh, so we have maple or ash. If you look at what Steve was just talking about, this isn't a simple leaf. I mean, we definitely can tell that from the leaves that this is an ash. You know, for people that are listening to the podcast that maybe are just getting into tree ID, just remember, it takes practice. Yeah. Uh, I walk by this tree, and just kind of out of the corner of my eye, I'm looking at the bark, I'm looking at the branching, I'm looking at the leaves. It just says ash to me. I'm okay with leaving it at ash. The branches are sort of high up. We'd have to jump a bit or climb a little bit to get to them. And with ashes, you got to look at the leaf scars. You got to look at if the leaflets have little um, little stems to them. And it's a complicated thing. Unless you have a good idea just off the top of your head. I do. You do? Only because I've been here before. <laughs> I've talked to the people that work here. Yeah. And uh, they said like 99% of, of what's here is white ash. Okay. So, so if you yeah. go to Rhinestein Woods, white ash. <laughs> but if uh, most of the time. Most of the time. But if yeah. you're somewhere else and if you're just starting out, yeah. definitely try. But the fact that you got it down to ash, that's important. But I will say if someone who works at Rhinestein is listening to the podcast and they know different, <laughs> let us know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so. Call us out. Put us yeah. on blast. <laughs> and I will, I will say, I think both of us are okay with if someone hears something on the podcast that they know is incorrect or not quite correct, we yeah. want to know about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pretty sure that it's a white ash. Yes. But yeah. And it's uh, got the yellow carotenoids. Right. And just based on the tree, there's nearly no green chlorophyll left. That's right. So we got the yellow carotenoids and no green chlorophyll. And no red anthocyanins. Yep. No red anthocyanins. All right. Yep. All right. So let's talk about... Uh, why these red colors have evolved. What are scientists thinking? There are two main ideas out there, two main competing ideas. What's the first one? What are you going to talk about? I want you to talk about the photo protection one. Okay. Because that, that one, I can never say very clearly, and that's probably a bad Photo side. protection? No, that, yeah, I mean, just in general. I'm not good at explaining it. All right. So I actually have it, uh, a very 
succinct sentence. So the idea behind the photoprotection hypothesis is that red pigments protects against the harmful effects of light at low temperatures. Nice. <laughs> there you go. So that's the idea. And this hypothesis has actually been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think in recent times, there was a study around 2003, and it may have been there a couple different studies, that kind of brought it back to the forefront. And the one that I found was from Montana State University, where they genetically blocked anthocyanin production. So mm -hmm. they stopped trees that produced the red color from producing that color. And they found that leave, those leaves were unusually vulnerable to sunlight and that they did not send as many nutrients to the roots for winter storage. Okay. Okay. So what I said before about photooxidation, yeah. that's the same thing, more right. or less. So, so what, I, what we were saying before about photosynthesis is that plants use water and they use CO2 from the atmosphere and they turn that into organic carbon molecules, sugars. including sugars yeah. and, and, sugars and building blocks. Yeah. yeah. But something else that it creates as a byproduct is oxygen. And oxygen is very highly reactive and they want that oxygen out of the leaf as fast as possible. But it's tough because every time the stomata opens to let oxygen out, and you stomata also... Stomata are like little tiny holes in them. Yeah, little, little doors, little yeah. controllable doors. And when they open, they let the oxygen out, but they also let water vapor out. So it's like this big balance between the two. So, so plant leaves, it's very important to note that they want oxygen out of their leaves. That's not a good thing to have. Right. And oxygen can actually... Um, it can react with chlorophyll. I think it's like three chlorophylls bind to one oxygen, and it makes them completely useless as a pigment. And they don't absorb sunlight anymore, and it's just a breakdown of that photosynthetic machinery, and it's just no good. And that's as much as I know about <laughs> photooxidation and, and protection. I, I, I am not that well-versed on this topic. I think we should point out that it seems, I think it would seem strange for some people to think of light damages leaves, because mm -hmm. you would normally think, no, leaves need light. But in the fall, you have a couple factors working. So you have the, the oxygen that they're trying to get rid of. But cold temperatures also reduce carbon fixation capacity. So uh, a tree uses carbon to keep its leaf going, to keep it alive. And as things start to shut down, that's not happening as much in the leaf. So the leaf's starting to break down. You also have more light due to a thinning canopy. So the further you get into the fall, the more these leaves uh, up in the, the forest canopy, the more light they're going to be exposed to. And then there's also uh, lower self-shading because there's less chlorophyll there to protect the leaf. Mm -hmm. uh, so those certain wavelengths of light we talked about, there's more of that light's going to be hitting the leaf. Yeah. So it's just going to be more damaging. And I think one of the papers I was reading went out of their way to point out that we say protection, but the, the trees have evolved. These leaves are, are on their way out. But what the, the tree is trying to do, the, this hypothesis is, is saying is, it's trying to extend the life of these leaves, trying to get as much as they can out of them before mm -hmm. they have to fall. Yes. Yeah. So if they can protect them, you know, if these red pigments can protect them a little longer from the, these, this damaging light, they can pull a little more nitrogen. They can pull a little more phosphorus. Yeah. Maybe get a little more sugar. It's funny. You have, like, almost different parts of the tree competing. Uh, yeah. Because you know, the tree, it's got to drop its leaves at the same time. It's trying to pull it out. Mm -hmm. uh, one study I found that said anthocyanins may actually delay the abscission layer. The, like the formation of the abscission layer. So you have the abscission layer trying to form, but while the tree's trying to pull out as much as it can, the anthocyanins are also delaying that process. Nice. Uh, possibly. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, and one thing that I wanted to bring up with a problem with the photoprotection theory. Yeah. 
when you think of chlorophyll and we think of carotenoids, you think of them together. They're lipid soluble, they're the, Fat the, the fatty areas in the chloroplasts. There's fat in in plant cells? Yes. Oh, <laughs> well, lipids. Yeah. Lipids are just, uh, you know, carbon. Sure. And, yeah, proteins and lipids and whatnot. That's what's reabsorbed out of the leaf. That's okay. really important. But the anthocyanins are water-soluble. They're a, a very different type of pigment. So they're going to be found in what I mentioned before, the vacuole. Inside the vacuole, you mostly have water, some sugar, and, and maybe some waste products from the leaf. Anthocyanins are a little bit divorced from chlorophyll. Are you familiar with coleus? No. It's like a garden variety plant. People can buy it at like a botanical gardens or something. And they have like purple leaves and the purple covers up the green and the purple is anthocyanins. And so they can actually form on the epidermal, the outer layer of the plant. Okay. And it actually, it covers up the chlorophyll. Okay. So sometimes the anthocyanins can cover up the chlorophyll. And so I imagine that even though they're not found in the same place, if there's enough of it, on the surface layer of a leaf, it can do some photoprotection. It's going to be a shield there for the chlorophyll that's underneath. Now we should point out that this is by no means uh, accepted by everybody as, yeah. as a definite uh, reason that the anthocyanins are produced. There's a lot of studies out there that support, but there's a lot of studies out there that uh, do not support. Yes. Or they didn't find support for it. One more thing I will say sure. that there's one study that I use, the Archetti. He's mm -hmm. a researcher from Oxford, and in 2009, he produced a paper with a bunch of other authors that took an interdisciplinary approach to why leaves change color. And it was just a great overview of here are the kind of the theories out there, here's some of the research that supports it, here's some of the research that doesn't. What he said is most of the research that has gone into the photoprotection hypothesis is, has attested, does anthocyanins protect the photosynthetic apparatus? So does it keep photosynthesis going on a little longer? Mm -hmm. But it doesn't look about other things. Well, maybe the anthocyanins are there to protect uh, the metabolites, which what's created by photosynthesis, the product of that. So maybe yeah. it's trying to, uh, these anthocyanins are there to keep those things going a little longer. Mm -hmm. um, so there's still a lot of research that needs to be done. Yeah, so they have a pretty good idea that whatever the answer is, photoprotection is going to be among the answer. Right. But we don't know exactly how it's among the answer yet. But we have a pretty good idea that there is some type of correlation between it being there and protecting. But isn't it crazy? Here, well, let's yeah, walk a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sure. Isn't it crazy that, you know, these this process, this cyclical process of, of leaves coloring and dropping has been happening for millennia, uh, and we still aren't sure why it's happening. And it's uh, not a natural <laughs> process that's, like, hidden or, you know that yeah. people don't come across on a regular basis. This happens every year. Yeah. People kind of make a big deal about it every year, but we <laughs> yeah. still don't know what, what, why it's happening. Yeah, it's, a, it's the, one of the most celebrated things in our part of the country, oh, really. Yeah. Our part of the world, even. Yep. Everyone's talking about, when's peak? When's peak? Yeah, when's peak? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know what, though? Doing the research for this for this episode, it sort of made me appreciate it a little bit more. It, it was super frustrating going through the literature. Mm. You know, I, I try to get everything I can. I try to get the, the best sources I can find. And, and a lot of that is I try to go for the, the newer sources, some of the some of the classic sources. Oh, oh, here's a bunch of 2015 papers. Oh, nope, they don't have the answer. <laughs> uh, but it, it sort of makes you appreciate it a little bit more, too. It makes you appreciate science because of how hard it is. Science is a hard thing to do. Yeah. Makes you appreciate the guys who are putting themselves on the line, publishing things that might make them look foolish. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you got you to gotta report what the data tells you and... That's all you can do, really. Yeah. Try to be as unbiased as possible. All right, so are we ready to move on to the, the second main hypothesis? Yes, and I think I can explain this one very, very shortly. Okay. The study I'm going to use to explain the coevolution hypothesis 
is a study from the Royal Society from 2001. All the study was showing that there was a correlation between the degree of yellow in a plant leaf and the aphid pest load that the plant had. So the more yellow, the more aphids. And what they thought was that the red leaves are signaling to the aphids. This is a coevolution. So the red leaves are signaling that they either have higher chemical defenses, lower nutrition, or that they have some other characteristic that would lower the fitness of the aphids if the aphids ended up laying their eggs on that tree. So the idea is that yeah. the aphids and the trees evolved together. Yes. And in the fall, those aphids are migrating to the trees to feed, to lay eggs, to do mm -hmm. whatever, and that the trees have evolved this defense of this coloration. Yes. That hopefully, that may be a signal yeah, to this... the aphids that, whoa, these trees aren't good. Yeah. The trees are saying, we're a bad host. Yeah. Come, whether they are or not. <laughs> I'm no good. <laughs> yeah. Don't come near me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what do we have to support this? Uh, very little, other than this original <laughs> study. Um, we know there's a correlation, but something very important in science is that a correlation does not equal causation. Right. We can't say that because there was this correlation between yellowness and, and aphid load, that there's this correlation between the two. All right. um, and, and there's been many papers going through this back and forth. Uh, um, and, and one of them was uh, from Trends in Ecology and Evolution in 2005. And their big takeaway was that A, the, the authors of this paper, they ignored alternative hypotheses, which are super important in science, um, that you just don't have a null hypothesis that it's just like, oh, it's this or it's not. You say it's this, or it could be this other phenomenon. It could be this other explanation or something. One of their biggest points was that aphids can't see red. And that is a huge problem because if they're signaling with red, if the aphids can't see it, that's, a, that's, that's problematic. And there's aphids, actually... Aphids don't have a red receptor. Yes, they have a blue and they have a green, but they do not have a red. And the blue and the green are very important later in another publication that we'll bring up very, very briefly. But a, a red color receptor in insects it's not very common. It only popped up about four times. The dragonfly and damselfly group, the sawflies, the wasp and bees group, <coughs> ants as well. Um, it's in the butterflies and moths, and it's in the beetles. As you may have noticed, I didn't mention true bugs, the hemiptera, and that's what the aphids are part of. And they don't have red, red color receptors. So people would think, well, wait a minute. So this hypothesis must be garbage, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> how could, if the insect can't see red, yeah. why would the tree evolve a red color? It might be a problem if it was pure red right. if the leaves were somehow just red if the only thing that was getting the light was the red photoreceptors but they're not the reds are imperfect and so you're it's gonna a range. get yeah it's a range so you're gonna be getting not just red reflecting off the leaves it's gonna come off looking like red but maybe it's like a slightly greenish red or a slightly bluish red and those blue green ratios are drastic enough to an insect for them to be able to tell them apart and th th there was other studies that actually showed this. Do you, do you have the study that, that said? There was a study in 07, which I thought was awesome. They used colored traps, and then they measured landing rates of aphids. And they, the traps show that aphids can distinguish between red and green, mm -hmm. and that red is 70% less attractive. So they landed there 70% less, yeah. and that yellow is more attractive than green. Yeah, and, and so I think what this study was saying was that it may not be anything to do with signaling it might just be the aphids, they're more attracted to yellow than they are to red. Right. It's not that the leaves are saying, hey, we're red, don't come this way. <laughs> it's that it's, it's all on the aphids in a sense. There's something about the trees that are red yeah. that's not as attractive. Yes. It may be the color, who knows, it probably has something to do with the color, but we're not sure how. Mm -hmm. um, I do wanna jump in if, if you don't have anything else I, I'm right good now. with this, yeah. But 
I think we do also want to give people the, some of the studies that support this. Like in uh, 2003, there was a study that showed that trees with green leaves showed more herbivory than those with autumn colors. So the aphids are chewing on them more if they're green mm-hmm. than if they have autumn colors. Also, in was, was it significantly different from the yellow? Do you have that? I don't have that. Oh, because <laughs> that'd be that'd be interesting. Right. Yeah, right. I wonder. Also, in, in 05, there was a study that showed the peak aphid migration of a certain aphid migrating corresponds to the peak of leaf color. The aphid numbers declined with autumn color intensity on specific trees. Um, so there is a lot of evidence out there. In 2001, there was a study that looked at 262 tree species. Uh, they did a comparative analysis. Mm-hmm. Trees with autumn colors have an evolutionary history of interaction with aphids in autumn. So if you're a tree and you evolve colors in the fall, chances are you're interacting with aphids in the fall as well. So all of these studies kind of point to, yeah, there's something going on here between aphids and leaf coloration. Yeah. We're just not exactly sure what it is. Yep. And one of the things in the Archetti article, that kind of overview, mm-hmm. it did say there's not enough evidence to confirm red as a signal because these studies don't show that aphid preference evolved in response to the color. There's not enough of a direct link being shown. They're like saying, yeah, the, somehow they can tell the difference in the color, but we're not sure exactly what's going on yeah. with the interaction. So there's still a lot more research that needs to be done. The one thing I liked about this hypothesis, though, is this did link up to the study I mentioned earlier today that talked about leaf color may be related to availability of nutrients in the soil. Mm -hmm. So if you're a tree that's in poor soils, you're going to have brighter colors. Yeah. And if the coevolution hypothesis holds true, those bright colors, which will allow you hopefully to draw more nutrients out of your leaves, it's also going to make you less attractive to aphids. And if you're a weak tree, you know, you don't want aphids coming and hanging out on you either. So... So we've covered yeah. the, the photoprotection hypothesis. Yes. We've covered the coevolution hypothesis. Yes. Those are the two biggies. Yeah. Let's just take a quick break now. And okay. Just look at this tree. Okay. I think that it's. I just need a break now. <laughs> I am. I have to take a mini break. So. Okay. Which tree you want to look at? What we're looking at now is a tree that I can't see any of its leaves. Oh yeah, I can. There's there's some there's some leaves. Yeah. So. This is not an opposite tree, so it's not in the madcap horse category. Okay. And this tree... Are you sure? What? What are you thinking this is? What do you mean? This guy right here? Yeah. Wake up. Hold on. Oh, is this a maple? This is a maple. Holy cow. But you thought it was a what? I actually thought it was a beech for a second. Right, right. Holy cow. So it goes to show you, you can't just go by bark. Yeah. We the, have to leave that in there. I've, I feel like I've never been more embarrassed about something no. in my life. No, because from the trail, when we started walking yeah. over here, I said, oh, I think that's a beach. But then when I looked up and saw the leaves. Now I'm looking for a beach, but then I think that's a mussel wood now. And yeah. uh, that's a thick mussel wood, though. Yes. Holy cow. Yes. And the, the mussel wood, again, it's not one that's producing any reds. I don't see any. Well, there's no we, evidence of why that. Why don't we talk about the mussel wood? Because this oh, isn't a yeah. tree that a lot of people run into. Yeah. Or oh, at great. least not one they'd recognize. So we have a smaller tree here. Mm-hmm. This one may be, what, 20 feet tall? Yeah. So it's definitely an uh, yeah. understory tree. Oh, for sure, yeah. And, it, you know, it has <laughs> leaves. Um, they're, they're sort of finely toothed, and they're, they're alternate on the stem. Yep. So they're not going to be included in your madcap horse, That's like right. the last tree that I got completely wrong. So we can, <laughs> we can eliminate <laughs> maples, ashes, dogwoods, all that thing. Yeah. The fact that it's, a, it's an understory tree, that helps narrow it down. Yeah. Although, although you could be looking at a young specimen. Yeah, that's true. But I think with this guy... He's going to throw my bark hypothesis out the window saying, you shouldn't use bark yeah. because this tree does have a very distinctive trunk. 
Yes, right. more distinctive than beech, as it turns out. <laughs> so a lot of people call this tree different names. Yeah, I call it muscle wood because I think it's a great way to remember how to identify the tree. But you'll hear other people calling it iron, iron wood, wood, American iron wood. I, it it's smooth but it has an undulating surface, would you say? If you think of what muscle looks like if the skin was gone, yeah. it's got that rippling... Um, rippling is a good way yeah, to say it. Yeah, it's like yeah. A, a rippling look to it. It really looks like muscle tissue, right. but it's a smooth bark. Right. Yeah. So you have a... And, and like we said, it's an understory tree, so it's not going to get real big. And I will say that typically when I do see this tree, I identify it by its, its bark. Yeah, I just... <laughs> I don't even look at the leaves. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, so we have a muscle wood. No anthocyanins in this one. Yes. Yeah. And actually, you'd probably assume that there's no anthocyanidins. That's true. At least you'd think, because it's pretty Antho, Anthocyanidins. Oh, anthocyanidins? Yeah. Oh, I, I was saying that wrong. Yeah, I think it is anthocyanidins. So, now that we covered the two main focuses, we, we're just going to... I think we should just briefly fr fly through a couple of the other ones that we thought were sort of interesting. Through all the crazy hypotheses. Yeah, yeah, the crazy ones. <laughs> that <laughs> might turn out to be the real reason. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> for all we know, it could be. All right, so, and I think yeah. you can break those... You can really break all the hypotheses into two main groups. Mm -hmm. There's uh, the group of uh, hypotheses out there that kind of fall under abiotic factors, so things that aren't alive. The other group of hypotheses fall under plant-animal interactions. Yeah. And we already talked about the coevolution. Yes. So that falls under that. Oh, let me talk about the trophic mutualism. Yes. <laughs> so this one's exactly the same as the last episode with goldenrods, where maybe the tree attracts the aphids, and then the aphids attract ants because the ants can tend them to get their honeydew, drinking this sugary byproduct from the aphids, and the, and the ants are protecting the tree. There's no evidence for that. <laughs> and even if there was evidence, it's not going to happen often enough with enough species for it to really be a nice blanket theory or, or for, it's not going to explain for so many different trees yeah. different tree species have red color yeah maybe we'll find that for a couple species or one species or something but right. we're probably not going to find it for the vast majority of red leaved species yeah all right so uh, that one doesn't have support what mm -hmm. else um oh, well my favorite you, you liked i know which one i like the anti-camouflage one that one's a, that's a good one I so like that it. the idea behind that is that the reason these red colors developed is because Again, it has to do with the aphids, but the idea is that the aphids were coming onto the tree, so the tree evolved these colors, so the aphids will stand out. Yes. So it's basically saying, look, there's food here. Some bird will come in and say, ooh, great, I can see these bugs much easier. Yeah. And then it'll eat them. But again, no evidence really supporting that yeah. hypothesis. And, and so your favorite hypothesis is complete garbage, but I just <laughs> want to share my favorite hypothesis, and I think that this one's interesting because it takes, takes this whole conversation in a completely different uh, way. Okay. Um, and so... Is this the one about glaciers? It is. Okay. So with this hypothesis, it so takes... So Steve has yeah. this crazy idea from <laughs> yeah. this one paper. It's great. It's a great paper. And it's funny, I didn't even write down which paper it was. But we'll, we'll have it linked in our work cited for the podcast. Yeah. Okay, so what it did was it looked at the most recent trends in, in geologic history. It looked at the last 65 million years, and it looked at... The, the different extreme temperature changes, the, you know, the glaciers moving in and moving out. It compared different temperate regions of the world. So it compared North America, Europe, and it compared East Asia. And what it found was that Europe experienced higher extinction rates in both trees and their insect herbivores, whereas North America and East Asia had lower levels of tree and insect extinctions. And so what they think was that the red autumn leaves are probably a relict um, adaptation to temperate floras in past climates 
Um, and, and in these past climates, there was different herbivore faunas that they had to deal with and, and co-evolve with. And a big part of this is that in Europe, you have the Alps. And the Alps are a big barrier for species movement. Or yeah. Spe- yeah. So when, when, glaciers co- yeah, when, when glaciers come down, trees end up retreating to areas that are more conducive to life. And in Europe, it can't do that. There's this huge barrier, and it can't go any more south. And so there, there is a couple of tree refugias for when glaciers come in. But there are, What's they're a up refugia? A safe place for a tree to exist in while harsh conditions have wiped it out of its area that it was normal previously range. in. Yeah, yeah, it's normal range. There was only a few tree refugias in Europe, and it was a little bit north, and there was no red-leaved species in those refugias. They, they know from the geologic data and whatnot. Whereas in North America and East Asia, there's no barrier. So when the glaciers come in, the trees can retreat south, and then when the glaciers pull out, the trees can just spread up north again. And so what they think, and this is the big idea, is that the red and plant leaves are an anti-herbivory adaptation to extinct faunas, but where that adaptation appeared was when the plants had to retreat down south. They were exposed to different herbivores, and, and there was some herbivore in the past that made it so red-leafed adaptation was important. And you'll actually see this today in tropical plants, where in young leaves, the leaves will be red. Stressed leaves, the leaves will turn red. And there's a number of species that this is true for. Okay. And then the only other time you see it in nature is up in temperate forests in about 13% of the species. Um, so they think that, like, since we're not finding any definitive answers with this coevolution and we're not finding definitive answers with uh, photoprotection, maybe it's just a leftover trait from some coevolution that happened in the tropics. And you still see it today in the tropics, and you see it a tiny bit where the trees have spread back north. It's just a remnant. It's an old, ancient adaptation. So it's the red coloration in trees it's like our pinky toe <laughs> is that true is the pinky toe just a, a I, silly thing that we have i think i've heard that, <laughs> that it's like in you know uh, several thousand years it will be gone we won't need it anymore but interesting uh, that may not be true but uh i think the analogy still holds that yeah it's well, uh it's a a trait that mm-hmm. is no longer useful but it's just continued to exist exactly and that's what they think the anthocyanins are they evolved in the tropics and the trees just happened to keep them when they moved back up north. There, there was no real reason for them to lose that adaptation. There wasn't a strong enough pressure to lose the red coloration. And that being said, not only was there a not strong evolutionary pressure to lose it, maybe it evolved for one reason and, and currently it's being used for another one today. Maybe after it spread up north, aphids started acting a certain way to the tree for for various reasons right. and so maybe it's what they call an acceptation where it evolved for one reason but has, in modern time it's being it used for use. something else yes it has another use that it didn't evolve for ah, and okay. and i think it's a very in, it took it took the argument in a completely different way sure. um and and it was just a nice breath of fresh air where <laughs> they even ended the paper maybe this will uh, cease this heated debate about <laughs> about uh, coevolution and versus photoprotection. Protection. Right. Yeah, and and I thought it was just a fascinating uh, little study. I mean, again, science isn't about believing or disbelieving, and you know, it's just about looking at the evidence and you know, seeing what makes sense and what what doesn't, and testing those ideas. And if they fail even once, we you know, try something else. Try something else, yeah. or try it in a different way. Try to explain it in a different way. Yeah. Fail better, right? Yeah. If at first you don't succeed, fail, fail again. Fail better. Fail better, yeah.
incremental steps toward the truth. Yeah, yeah, we hope we're less wrong. Every year that science goes by, we hope we're closer to the truth. Right, we hope we're less wrong. Or so, at least further from the not truth. <laughs> <laughs> further from being completely wrong. Yeah. So, personally, I think we're going to eventually find out that it's kind of a combination of things. And, yeah. and maybe, like you just said, maybe it's this um, relic trait that's not being used anymore, but now it's found another use. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it's going to boil down to one thing? or it's gonna... Maybe we'll find that um, this coevolution with aphids or some other, um, some other species, it, it explains some of the variation in these right. trees. And that's, I think that's all we can really hope for in a way because it's, nothing happens in a vacuum. Right. Nothing happens by itself. So, and and that's, what, that's what gums up the works. That's what makes things so complicated. But that's also what makes things so beautiful. It's interesting. It, uh, it, it makes it so much more interesting. And will give us fodder for many, many, many podcasts. Oh, yeah, I know. And, <laughs> and if, if nature was so easily pigeonholed, you know, would, yeah. would, would people be this passionate about it? You know, would we be this excited to do research on, on something that's so confusing and, 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 and but hard? But so beautiful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. but beautiful. It's yeah. at the... Ah, it's it's wonderful. <laughs> Chaotic but ordered all at the same time. It's it's wonderful. All right, so do you have anything else to add? Um, I think that I'm done talking about <laughs> this topic. <laughs> I think I, I finally feel good about the amount of, of stuff we put out there. Um, unless, did you have anything else from your research? Anything that is, is I killing you to get out? <laughs> I did not. Uh, but, I, we got everything that uh, I wanted to get out mm -hmm. about the, the two main theories. Uh, we identified some trees. Yeah, so let's just go over a very quick, quick summary of the episode. Okay. So, pigments, they reflect light, that's what gives the color, but they also absorb light, and that light is used in photosynthesis. And that's super important. That's a big thing. Chlorophylls are green, keratinoids are yellow and orange. Carotenoids. Carotenoids. <laughs> and anthocyanins are red. Um, anthocyanins are produced in autumn. We don't know why, but we think that it has something to do with coevolution, and we think it may also have something to do with photo protection, some combination thereof. That's our best guess today. And we're including, when we say we, you're including us with all the researchers out there doing yeah, I mean, we're, the work. Yeah, I mean, we're waiting for the new publications to come out. Yeah, yeah and I think that's it. We, we looked at musclewood today. Notice that by the, the way the bark looks, the, the, the very the ripply, muscle-like bark. Remember madcap horse for both ashes and maples. And also the opposite branching trees. Opposite branching trees, maples, ashes, dogwoods, caprifoliaceae, which is the viburnums, the honeysuckles, and also the horse chestnut. And remember, horse chestnut and maples are all in the same family now. That's right. <laughs> which is super weird. That blows my mind. Yeah, oh, it's incredible. Well, first we wanted to say uh, thank you to our friend Matt. Uh, he has his own website and podcast, indefensiveplants.com, mm -hmm. and uh, the podcast is excellent, a uh, little more technical than ours, so yes. all you botany lovers out there, uh, check that one out, but he gave us a nice shout out on a recent episode, yeah. so we are doing the same for him, check out indefensiveplants.com. Yeah, and, and if you like me at all, I've been on about, I don't know, about 20% right. like of his overall podcast, he has, I don't know, he's got a, he's got a number of them. Um, we talk about a lot of cool topics, yeah. and then including even uh, nature books that we like. We, yes. <laughs> we even did an episode on that. And uh, uh, yeah. they talk about a lot of different things. You did one on mate. Uh, yeah, we did one on yerba mate, uh, yeah. the Argentinian drink that's delicious that some people find terrible and disgusting. Oh, oh, a, oh garter a garter snake. snake. Garter snake slithering in front of us. Nice. <laughs> in the one spot of sunlight that's that we right. walked through. <laughs> and we just chased him out of it. Yep. Um, and so thank you to Matt and uh, check out his podcast it's really cool and uh, thank you to everyone who's liked us on Facebook yes that's right and if you like it uh, please share it with other people let them know about it encourage them to like it because uh, the more traffic we get to our website which is 
thefieldguidespodcast.com. So the more uh, traffic we get, the more downloads, then we hopefully can get it up on iTunes and on other websites, right? Yes, So and that'll be, it'll make things a lot easier for people to get it on a monthly basis. Right. Yep, and so thank you everyone. And uh, If you have yeah. ideas for topics you'd like us to cover. Winter's coming along and we're always going to be out in the field looking at stuff. So That's right. Um, yeah, so let us know what, what you guys want to hear and, and we'll do our best. And we appreciate everyone liking and leaving comments for us. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, we'll see you next month. Yep.